We are starting a brand new sermon series. We'll get us chewing on some of the words of the greatest teacher who ever lived, Jesus Christ. And although he taught some really long sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount that covers four chapters in the book of Matthew, he also was a master communicator teacher who knew how to hold the attention of a crowd as well as how to slip under and past their defenses to shock them and shake them out of their conventional ways of thinking that are almost never like God wants us to be thinking. So get this, as we start this whole new series on parables, don't make a mistake. Parables are not the equivalent of some sweet little bedtime story that was meant to make you feel warm and fuzzy all over. Not at all. Not at all. Parables were designed by their very nature to be unsettling, disturbing, unsettling and disturbing. And if you read your Bible, you'll see that most often whenever he told a parable, the response of the crowd was like he was poking a hornet's nest and they began to murmur with each other. And very often, even as they walked away from the message, would talk about ways to kill him. So hopefully your mother never told you a bedtime story. thought, I want to kill her. That was so upsetting right before I go to sleep. So these are not bedtime stories. They were meant to rattle, disturb, unsettle. Because he would sense they're set in their way of thinking. And it's not anything like they ought to be thinking. It's time for a parable. And the word parable is simply taken from the Greek word parabolon. That means to throw one thing down alongside of another. To teach a spiritual truth By illustrating it with something concrete in this life that we're all familiar with. So let's dig into the very first one in our series. Go with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And I do hope you have what? A Bible. Bible. I want you to see it for yourself. Go to Luke chapter 6 in your Bibles. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 46. Luke chapter 6 beginning in verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose... The stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. And here's what I want to do. I want to walk back through the passage and unpack it a little for you to help us to understand and to see, because every time he taught a parable, it's because he wanted to rattle us and reorient us. So I want you to see where Jesus thought we needed to be rattled and reoriented in our thinking. But here's where he starts. Number one, Notice the way he sets this up. It's clear that you're all building your lives on something. So the the parable is not about a literal house. It's not a construction project that you can see. 
These houses are lives. You're all building your lives on something. You've all got a mission statement. Whether you've got it written down or not, whether you're conscious of it or not, every single person sitting here has some kind of mission statement you're working off of, either consciously or unconsciously. Because listen, human beings, unlike the plant and animal kingdom, because we're created in the image of God, we're God-like. We have this burning, but why am I here? What is this all about? I don't want to just go through the motions. I can't just keep doing this over and over. For what? For what? For what? Why? Why do it again? Human beings, unlike the plant and animal kingdom, are never satisfied to just live and work and eat and breed and buy and die. So everybody sitting here is building, you are building your life around something or on something or someone. Because you're a human being. That's what keeps human beings going. Number two, notice also, you're all going to face, you're all going to face troubles of some kind at some time in your life. We don't all go through the same things, but listen, don't take the attitude of, whoa, whoa, is me. It always happens to me. It's always me. Nobody else. Hey, get this. You're all going to face troubles of some kind at some time in your life. There are no exceptions. Notice the wind, the rain, the storms, all, all slammed into both houses. Whether the house was built on a rock or whether the house was built on the sand, both went through storms. So this is not a parable teaching you some secret formula for how to avoid trials, how to avoid trouble, how to get in the zone and be above the fray and and ruckus of this world. That's what we're so often looking for. Jesus never teaches that way. You won't find a sermon from Jesus about how to avoid the trials and not go through trouble or suffering. You got to go outside of the Bible for that kind of nonsense. You got to read books outside of the Bible for that kind of nonsense. Books by people like Joel Osteen. And Ken, I said it. Yes, I did. Sometimes people say, why do you name names? I name names because I want you to know exactly who you shouldn't be reading. I don't want to say there's people out there like who? Like Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar and, 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 and Benny Hinn. And I could go on and on and on. There's always some of these. And notice, those are the people, the kind of, kind of people that talk this way. The ones that have personal, private jets and multi-million dollar homes. That's who talks this way. And as they talk this way, it appeals to people because people hope that they can get it too. But all it does is make them rich so they can buy another jet and another home. Because it's not biblical. They may talk that way. Jesus never did. You won't find a sermon like that in the Bible. You got to go outside the Bible for that kind of nonsense. When you read the Bible, you see things like James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all what? When you fall into various trials, you will, not if, by chance, you miss the formula and you're really screwing up and you do something super stupid. Call me stupid because there's a way to avoid all that. No, count it all joy when it's coming. You fall into various trials. All kinds of trials. Peter himself in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 said, Stop being so surprised. Don't be so surprised at the fiery trial which is to try you. And Jesus himself said in John 16, While you're in this world, 
When you're in this world, you will have tribulation. So the parable is not Jesus teaching how to avoid trouble and trials. Get this. The parable is to teach us how to not collapse in the middle of them. They're coming. How are you going to keep from collapsing in the middle of the trials? That's what the parable is all about. And he gives the answer in this parable. And it's not what you might think. It's not the answer you might think. How does one person stand? How does one life not fall apart? It's not what you might think. And it was not what the people in the crowd were thinking. And so here's where the parable begins to be unsettling, disturbing. Here's where Jesus pokes the hornet's nest. And that's point number three. Exposure to God's word alone is not enough. You say, really? You talk about the Bible all the time. I know. Exposure to God's word alone is not enough. But simply makes, still leaves you vulnerable, just makes you more accountable. You're still vulnerable to collapse if you're just being exposed to it and that's it. You're still vulnerable, just more accountable. And so that's the biblical principle, folks, in this parable that is the stomach punch. Where the air gets knocked out of you and you say, what? You mean just knowing God's word alone? Because see, this parable is the conclusion to a sermon he's been preaching in chapter 6. If you want to want to get some extra stuff for yourself, go back and read chapter six. He's been preaching a sermon with some really hard stuff about upside down kingdom, about giving generously, about when people hate you, you're blessed, about just radically different thinking. And so he knows at the conclusion of this sermon in Luke six, that people are standing there and here's the great danger. They think just because they've heard this now and have been informed and know this that they're in a better position than those who've never heard. And so he tells the parable. He puts his finger right on the biggest problem that is still the biggest problem today, folks. I know it. I'm just not doing it, but I still think I'll be blessed because I know it. I know it. I know biblical truth. Listen, to be more theologically informed... And to be more biblically literate, and I can find books of the Bible and verses faster than some people, and to have a little bit of Christian vocabulary that you can toss around does not put your life on the rock. And that's what he knew about the people thinking and standing there in the crowd. And it's the same problem that we have today so often. Knowing and hearing is not enough. And so at the end of this sermon he throws down a parable and puts one thing alongside of something else to rattle them and reorient them to realize here's the deal there's a huge difference between a disciple of Jesus Christ who follows Jesus and someone who is simply theologically informed and biblically literate it's the follower of Jesus who seeks to put it into practice whose life begins to be dug down deep and hit the rock and have a foundation that this person doesn't. You know it, but you're not doing it. You're not digging down deep to put it into practice. So your life is gonna fall apart just like unbelievers that don't know anything. When cancer strikes, 
And your PSA test comes back, prostate cancer, and every year it's good, it's good, it's good. It's not good. Collapse. When your spouse betrays you, collapse. When your your retirement investments go belly up and are emptied out by someone who did something stupid and wronged you or just by the market that tanked, collapse. When your children grow astray after you worked hard and prayed and did all that you thought you should do, but this isn't turning out or looking anything like I thought it would look like, collapse. When friends abandon you or not there for you, let you down, collapse. Or when you just wake up, when you just wake up in the middle of a life that you don't recognize that you never thought would be yours, collapse. See, you need to understand what Jesus is saying. The distinguishing characteristic between the life that's on the rock and the life that's on sand and can be easily taken out in a moment is not just hearing God's word. Think about how often it happens. Surely this has happened to you. Where someone collapse. And everybody's like, oh, Oh, she went to church faithfully. She was very involved in her church. He was very involved. He knew his Bible. She was in a women's Bible study with colored pencils, circling verbs and drawing lines and making connections. He was in a men's accountability group. Now, don't hear me saying, don't bother attending church. Don't read your Bible. Don't do a Bible study and really look at the verbs and connections. I'm not saying none of that matters. But do hear what Jesus is saying. It's not enough. It's not enough. You want to be on the rock? You want your life not to collapse in the trials and the storms? You must put it into practice in your life. The Christian life is not a huge project in information. It starts with information. You've got to know things you didn't know. It is about transformation, being changed to become more like him. Repenting, obeying, following, following. It's as you begin to take what you've heard and look for ways to put it into practice that you begin to dig footers in your life that keep you stable in the midst of a storm while others around you collapse many times who are just as biblically informed as you maybe know their bibles better than you maybe have verses memorized and you don't have any memorized so what's going on you can know it know it know it but if you're not putting it into practice you're not on the rock see let me say it to you this way obedience that applies God's word to your life, that seeks to apply God's word to my life. How how would I apply this to my life? Obedience that seeks to apply God's word to your life was never meant to be optional. It's essential. Never meant to be optional. It's essential. Yet we've got Christians running around all over the place trying to find some way to know it, not do it, still be blessed. Know it, not do it. This do it part is optional. Some serious Green Beret Christians, wow, they actually obey. Isn't that amazing? Yay, go, go. I just gonna know it. I don't do it. I still sleep with my girlfriend. I still sleep with my boyfriend. I know he says that. Fornication, that's such an old thing. I mean, today, everybody sleeps together, Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't matter. News alert, it matters. 
God's word hasn't changed. It doesn't matter what the culture is doing. It doesn't matter if, if the bulk of the church of Jesus Christ is so worldly that they're acting like everybody else. Jesus hasn't changed. God's word hasn't changed. It's know it, do it, and be blessed. And begin to see your life on the rock. See, when, when, when your life falls apart or someone else's around you falls apart and you say, how did that happen? They were involved in a good church that preaches the Bible. You're in one. They were in a small group where they discussed the Bible. They even picked up the Bible every now and then and read it. How did their life fall apart? They did not make the effort and do any of the hard work of prayerfully thinking and wrestling and fighting against their flesh to put it into practice. To put it into practice. It's the same thing that James, the brother of Jesus, teaches in his letter. If you were to go to James chapter 1, don't do it for the sake of time, you'll see the same thing. Some of you will know it. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. But be, don't be hearers only of the word, but be ye doers. And he actually says, if you are just hearing and not doing, you're deceiving yourself. That's the next phrase in James 1.20. Deceiving yourself. You say, deceiving myself about what? About your condition and how safe you are and how you're in a better place than other people. No, you're not. Don't be deceived. Just knowing more and being biblically informed leaves you still vulnerable, just more accountable and collapse is coming. Listen, some of you need to respond to this stomach punch today from Jesus Christ to avoid the total collapse of tomorrow because it's coming. It's coming. It's just a matter of time. Sooner than you think, it's coming. Respond to the stomach punch today to avoid the total collapse of tomorrow. If you are guilty of, I know it, 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 I hear it, I know it, I'm exposed to it, I'm around it. I just hardly ever do it. I hardly ever put it into practice. I'm, that's optional. That's why Jesus says in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord? That was a word for master, master. He's like, please stop it. Don't call me master if you never do what I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? So here's the heart and main point of the parable. Number four, putting God's word into practice or obedience is how you dig a foundation that enables you to stand when so many others around you collapse. See, we're guilty of sometimes thinking, oh, but my trial is worse than her trial or his trial. Oh, pay attention. You'll see people go through something less difficult than someone else and someone else going through something horrific that does not crumble. Why? It's not personality, folks. It's this that we're talking about. Their life was more on the rock. They had dug down. See, as we sit here on Sunday morning, it's hard to see differences because everybody showed up. But we don't know who's on the rock. We don't know who has a foundation, who is dug down deep and is on the rock and who's just sitting right on the surface of Christianity and church with information, but very little transformation. Here's how we know when the storm comes. The ones that are just sitting on the earth with no foundation because they know, but they never do, collapse, collapse, 
Don't let it happen to you. And you say, well, Brad, help me. You've, you've alarmed me. Please don't leave me here. I'm your friend. We're going to do this now. So with the time that remains, if that's the main point of the parable, and it is, parables teach one thing. So the one thing is exposure to God's word alone is not enough and still leaves you vulnerable, only more accountable. Putting it into practice or obedience is what begins to put your life on a rock with a foundation that's being dug versus someone just sitting right on the surface that's going to be taken out. So here's what I want to do. I want to spend the rest of our time helping you to think, how would I put it into practice, Brad? How would I get from sand to rock? How would I, how would I push my Christian life to stop being just information, 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 and begin to be some transformation? Two ways I want to try to do that for you. First, I want to push off the table erroneous thinking about obedience that often hangs us up and causes us to never head down that path and get serious about it. And then I want to share with you some habits that I've tried to do that I would share with you like one beggar talking to other beggars about where I found bread. It's not exhaustive, but here's things I'm trying to do to be on the rock and to put it into practice. Let's start with pushing off the table some of the erroneous thinking, dangerous thinking that hangs up Christians. Number one, Don't let your concern over legalism become an excuse for disobedience. Here's what I mean. We're living in a day where I'm grateful for a revival in the last five to seven years. Huge revival for gospel and grace. Some of you may have grown up in a church that was so legalistic and you don't play cards. You don't go to the movies and you don't drink and you don't cuss and you don't smoke. And it was all about what you don't do and how long your hair is and what your dress is like. And that's, that's what earns us favor with God. Look at us. And in a reaction to that, and that is a mess, we've got writers and bloggers and conference speakers today that I believe have swung way too far the other way in a reaction to legalism. And now it's almost a bad word to talk about obedience or putting forth effort. As soon as you talk that way, they're like, whoa, don't get legalistic with me. It's all grace, baby. It's grace. I'm in the recliner of gospel grace. My feet are kicked back with King Jesus doing it all. Oh, let me help you. We say it all the time. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith, in Christ, plus good. Here's what you also need to know. When he saves you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing, he doesn't leave you alone. He puts his Holy Spirit in you and that same grace that saved you is a grace that is supposed to empower you to now, news alert, get out of your recliner and put forth effort. Gospel and grace are opposed to earning God's favor. You cannot earn God's favor. But gospel and grace are not opposed to effort after you're saved. You must. The sanctification process is you and his spirit and his grace together working. You must work. Work's not a bad word in the Christian life. Effort's not a bad word. Peter in his second letter in Second Peter said, make every effort to add to your faith, godliness and virtue. And in Second Timothy chapter four, verse seven, Paul said, exercise yourself unto godliness. And it's the word gymnazo, which means sweat, put forth effort. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, therefore I run this race and I buffet my body and I discipline myself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one and two, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with endurance. 
Setting aside every weight and the sin which so... It sounds like you're going to have to do something. The Bible's full of talk that way. You don't do to get God's favor. But once he saves you, you have got to put forth effort. If you want to be on the rock instead of sand. Don't let concerns over legalism become an excuse for disobedience. In fact, get this. Obeying and working hard to put it into practice in your life is not legalism. It's evidence of your love for Jesus. You say, really? Yeah. Listen, I believe Jesus would say to some of you, stop saying you love me. Oh, I love Jesus. Sleep with my girlfriend. Oh, I love Jesus. I lie whenever it's convenient. Oh, I love Jesus. I use all my money for me and never give it anyway. Oh, I love Jesus. I pad my expense account and just get a little extra. Oh, I love Jesus. He'd say, shut up. He's not looking for what your lips say. He's looking for what your life does. You say, how do you know that, Brad? John 14 is only one place. Three times in John 14, he says this. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll obey my commands. Jesus says, as all these people are saying they love me, I know who does and who doesn't. You know how? She obeys. He obeys. Now, will you obey perfectly? But see, here's where you also get, well, no, I'll never be perfect, so why try? Because he said, pursue holiness without which no one will see God. There's a sobering verse. If you're sitting in your gospel grace recliner, be alarmed. I hope I just flipped you out of the lazy boy. (laughs) Pursue holiness without which no one will see God. It's going to take effort, sweat. It's going to be hard. Put off, put on by God's grace in you and his Holy Spirit with you. Number two, dangers that we need to push off the table. Be careful how you describe your struggle with sin. We're all struggling. It's hard because you still have this sinful flesh. Be careful how you describe your struggle with sin because here's the deal. The way you choose to describe it often signals what you think the next step ought to be as to what you need to do. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Romans 8 about fighting sin with the Holy Spirit in you, puts it this way. He says, it's time for us Christians to face up to our responsibility for holiness. Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we're not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be well if we stopped using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I, oh, listen to this. When I say I am defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. And I'm saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I am disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may in fact be defeated, but the reason we're defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. We have chosen to entertain lustful thoughts or to harbor resentment or to shade the truth a little. We need to brace ourselves up and realize that we are responsible for our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. Only as we accept our responsibility and appropriate God's provisions will we make any progress in our pursuit of holiness. I hope you notice we often sing songs about the chains of sin have been broken. 
He has set me free. News alert, those songs are rooted in scriptural truth from Romans 6 and other places that you are no longer a slave to sin. If you know Jesus and you're a Christian and he lives in you, you don't have to sin anymore. Every time you do, it's your choice. So let's talk in terms of, I disobeyed again this week and I looked at pornography. Stop saying, well, I was defeated again. Even your wording makes it sound like it was, we're talking about a third person here. Something else was involved. I disobeyed. I chose to go there. I chose to do this. God help me. I repent. Speak in terms of responsibility of disobedience and obedience. Be careful how you frame and describe your struggle with sin. It makes a difference. Number three, pushing off erroneous thinking to get ready to follow and obey. Never lose the urgency of holiness by settling into a cruise control obedience. Jerry Bridges has some great books and one of them is The Disciplines of Grace. Notice how, and some of you thought, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Discipline, grace, grace is I don't have to do anything. Discipline sounds hard. Yes. And so he brings these two things together because they're both in the Bible. Yes, grace, and yes, I have to put forth effort by God's grace in the Christian life. And he uses this illustration. He says, cruise control is a fantastic device that we have for cars. I love it. I don't like driving. I don't like long trips. I feel exhausted. Cruise control helps. When I can get people away from me, if if no one else used the interstate, I would be so happy. I need space. Because when there's heavy traffic, you can't use cruise control. But when you can set it and forget it, I don't feel as tired. I can relax, kind of do every other thing. I'm keep the hand on the wheel, but I'm just... My foot is off the accelerator. It doesn't feel as exhausting. There's a device and it's that device's job. I bring my speed up to the desired speed. I'm pressing it and I set this button and I'm done. And it just keeps it there. Wonderful. I love it. But he says this. He said, the danger is we've got Christians resorting to cruise control obedience where they bring their obedience up to the speed desired how much effort they want to put forth and what most everyone else around them is doing and then just set it. They don't have to put forth effort thinking about God's word and what it says. I'm not doing any more than this because everybody else is sleeping with their boyfriend, girlfriend and it's just what happens today. Everybody pads their accounts and turns in expenses that weren't real. Everybody. He says, contrast that attitude of cruise control obedience where I don't have to really put forth effort to those of a race car driver. They don't have cruise control on their cars. We don't want to cruise or blend in with all the other cars. They are focused, looking at the turns, thinking about what they need to do, foot on the accelerator constantly. They're exhausted at the end of a race. They are sweaty and exhausted. They have put forth effort with all their heart and soul and mind. They want to win. He says, that's what our obedience should be like. It doesn't matter what other people around you are doing. It doesn't matter what the level of what most Christians today find acceptable. What's God's word say? Don't lose the urgency of holiness by settling into a cruise control obedience. Number four, stop being surprised and put off by how messy and hard obedience is. Notice the parable is a construction building picture. That's a lot what obedience is like. Any construction projects that I've been a part of or know of or hear about all include some of the same messy ingredients. It always costs more than you thought it was going to cost. 
right? I just shudder every time I hear someone say, oh, we're building a home, nightmare. Oh, and we're using someone in our church to do it. Double nightmare. This will not end well. Friendships will be broken. Elders will be involved to sort it all out. Please don't do that. Use someone ungodly so you can just take care of it outside in court. <laughs> Whew, don't give me one more thing to sort out. This will not go well. Nobody says to me, oh my goodness, it came in under cost. Less than we were told. We got $15,000 left that we don't know what to do with here for the church. No, 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 no. They had to take a second loan and mortgage and it's a nightmare and it's more than they meant to spend and they can't really make the payments and now they're pinched and terrible. It always takes longer than you thought, right? Does anybody say three months sooner than we knew? We're in. It's longer. It's longer. They ran into sewage where sewage isn't supposed to be. There was problems with the city zoning. Costs more. You head down a path and decide you're going to obey and you think, oh, I'm going to obey that. God's convicted me. And all of a sudden, it starts costing you more than you thought it was going to cost you. It's taking longer. I thought I would just knock this puppy out in a weekend or two. And you get disheartened. And here's the other thing. Since he gave the illustration of foundation, that kind of building, what's the other problem with that? We lose heart because you don't see anything right away. And so you think nothing's happening. I put forth some effort, but I want to see structure already. What's going on in the back of our building right now? It's been all torn up and shut down. We're inconvenienced for weeks. But if you look at it, you're like, what are you doing? There's a blue tarp over a big mess. What have you done? Well, I'll tell you what they're doing. If you were here Monday to Friday and be glad you're not, they're using jackhammers. Hours on in. It's beautiful to write sermons too. Like, oh, that pounding. It's just, because here's the other thing. Very often with construction, demolition is involved before anything new can be done. Listen to this. When you come to Jesus Christ, unless you come as a young, young child, most of us have already spent years slapping together some horrible housing project in our life. We already have the ugly housing project of foolishness and sin that we've slapped all together that made perfect sense to us. News alert, that's all got to be torn down and pushed out before he can do what he wants to do. And it's hard, it's not easy, it's not fast, it's not fun, but it's got to be done. For so many of us, the, the Spirit's initial work in your life, sometimes for months, sometimes for years, is just a demolition project, getting the rubble cleared out of the way. To be, so don't lose heart. We are so guilty of losing heart too quickly with obedience because you look at other people and you say, I want to be where they are. I want you just don't know the demolition project that God did in their life earlier. Don't lose heart when you think about and you head down this path of obedience. So there's what we need to push out of the way. Now let me give you some habits that I hope will help you. This is not exhaustive, but these are things I've tried to do, I am trying to do so that I will finish well. That my life, because it happens to pastors. Aren't we all surprised by pastors even as church leaders? You're like, what? I thought he knew the Bible. I thought he loved Jesus. I thought he, he just left his wife. Or he just took all the building fund and ran off to, you know, Putacana. I want to go there, but not with the building fund. It's like, what was going on? 
Can a pastor traffic in scriptures and handle scriptures and know scriptures and preach it to others, but have ceased applying it to his own life or her life and end in collapse? Yes, it can happen to anybody. Number one, what are you going to do? Read the Bible. How much of it? Now I'm going to give you a new little thing. There's a new thing we're going to do with this. I always say, read the Bible, how much? And now I want to say, for how long? And your answer is, for a lifetime. Ready? Read the Bible, how much? For how long? Read the Bible, how much? For how long? Read the Bible, how much? For how long? See, here's the deal, folks. It's the cumulative effect of reading God's word day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, that begins to renew your mind to think more like God thinks. And here's, this is good, you're gonna like this, and begins to actually change your desires to want to put it into practice. If you'll just keep reading it, all of it, for a lifetime, just like water running over rocks in a river, it begins, to, it begins to rub off those rough edges and that water begins to shape those rocks to the contour of the flow. God's word can begin to shape your thinking and your desires to the contours of what God says and you can actually want it more than you used to want it. That's helpful. Because some of you are sitting there saying, I read God's word every now and then and it always just startles me and surprises me and I just think, no way. Keep reading. Keep reading. He can actually begin to shape the contours of your heart and desires and thinking. So read it, read it, read it. Number two, take the extra time when you read it to personalize it and pray it back to God. Now I'm gonna say something that might sound startling, but I think this one thing, if you would institute this one thing in your life, if you would make this one little change, could reap huge dividends in getting you on the rock and digging a foundation. Ready? Never use all your Bible reading time just reading the Bible. That's right. You, here's what I mean. You got 15 to 20 minutes set aside before you're gonna head off to middle school or high school or Xavier or L or the workplace. Don't just read, 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 read those 15, 20 minutes and right to the very last second, run out the door. Save five to seven minutes of whatever amount of time you've got allotted. I've got 20 minutes, I've got 30 minutes, whatever. Save five to seven. And when you finish, how far are you gonna read? Because I gotta save five to seven. I'm stopping now, put a little marker. Take those five to seven minutes and look back over what you read. If you were reading a Psalm or half a chapter of the New Testament or some in the Old Look for something you can circle. Look for something under, look for something you write in the margin and take, you see something about God that his mercies are new like every morning. Well, you don't have to lift your hand. I love to lift my hand. You're by yourself, lift your hand. And you say, God, thank you. Praise him, take something there and praise him. God, thank you that your mercies are new every morning for me. That's the kind of God you are for me. New, this morning I've got fresh mercy. Thank you. Same job, same health issues. But fresh mercy. Take something you just read and praise him. Take something you just read that you're like, ooh, there's something, there's someone who did right, there's someone who did really bad, there's, there's an exhortation, say, oh God, that's not me, I need to be more like that, but I'm not, change me, help me. Here's how I would say it. Take those five to seven minutes, 
to ponder God's word so that you can personalize it, so that you can pray it back to God to help you live it. I'm going to say that again. Take those five to seven minutes to ponder God's word. Look back over it so that you can personalize it. Put yourself in it so that you can pray it, asking him to help you live it. Ponder, personalize, pray to live it. That can make a huge Don't just read God's word. Number three, get serious about making time in your schedule to get close to other believers. Close to other believers so that you can change and grow. We say it all the time here. It's because we believe it's biblical. We believe Christians, believers, change and grow best. Get traction in the Christian life and actually begin to live it out and do it at close range with other believers. This setting that I do love on Sunday morning is not enough. There are things that can't happen here and don't happen here in a room this size that do happen in a smaller setting. And it's not optional. You've got to have it in your life. You've got to have Christian friends outside of this room at close range. You need to be in a small group at close range where the joys are multiplied as you celebrate together. The burdens are divided as someone else puts their shoulder under that burden and you pray for each other and you help each other. And you hear other people talking about how they tried to put something into practice and you're getting all the good that you can from grace and wisdom from other believers to help you put it into practice and live it out, which is when you begin to move from sand to rock and start to get a foundation. Here's how I would say it to you. None of us are experts in personal holiness. We need each other. We need each other. He he designed the Christian life for you not to be an island, for you not to be on, we need other believers to help us pursue holiness, to help us put it into practice. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Same thing, since it's a construction illustration, building illustration, our kids are beginning to grow up and move away. Woo! I'm not brokenhearted. No. And I love them. But this is the goal. Hello, it's the goal. Go. And so as they're moving away, we're like down to one. Of course, one just came. No, two came back. But that's kind of how it is. But hopefully temporarily. But we're down to one, 16-year-old. So like, oh my goodness. We decided let's replace the carpet. Because here's the deal. Believe it or not, it actually looks like five kids lived with us for 20 years. Yeah, it does. It shows a little wear. It looks awful. So let's replace the carpet. Let's put in hardwood floors in the bedrooms. Maybe that'll help with my allergies. So we caught, if you know me, I would never do that. Terrible stuff like this. And I want it to look good. So we call a guy that's great. We saw the floors he did in someone else's houses in our church. Done. You're the man. But then we said, ooh, the walls look terrible in the bedrooms and bathrooms. Let's go ahead and paint first. But we say to him, how about... Like, no, he doesn't really do painting. It's not his main thing. He's not that good at it. So we reach out to another guy in our church that paint is who he is, is what he does. And he's great. So we have him come to the house to give us a bid. And as he's looking at everything, he looks up in one bathroom. He's like, oh, that is a mess. So there's a vent and there's a light that's just a mess. I didn't know this. He acted like it was horrible. Rusty, old. He's like, that needs to be replaced. And I could do it, but it's not really what I do. So we called another guy in our church who's sitting in this room. It's what he does. He, he loves crawling through blown insulation in my attic to work on this. And all this, because it's funny, the guy, the painter said to me, you might could do this. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I've always learned it's never what you think. 
And so it's so funny, this guy in our church that did come to do it, I was at work, but Vicky was there. She said, he just kept saying, she said, he sounded like you, Brad. He just kept saying, oh, oh, no, oh, oh. That. And she said, I finally said to him, just tell me it's gonna be okay. Is it gonna be okay? Can you? But he had to go to the attic, crawl through that. It's not a finished attic. There aren't boards. You're going from joist to joist to joist. Please don't fall through the ceiling. It's blown insulation. Big deal. So he does that. But we're still not done. I'm on three guys now for one project. We're still not done because one of the bathrooms yours truly did work on. And it looks horrible. I tried to do the drywall and it's like the more spackling I use, the more it's like, oh no. And three times for two hours at a pop, we're up to six hours. I've tried to work and it looks like giant tumors all over the wall. It is so ugly. So I said to the painter, let's get that fixed. And he said, I could do that. But it's not really what I do. I got a guy that he's the king of drywall. He's so good. I kid you not. This guy named Dave. And I want you to listen to this message, Dave. So I'm calling you by name, Dave. Dave comes to the house and in 20 minutes, no exaggeration, Vicky called me at church and said, oh my goodness, Dave is the man. Dave fixed in 20 minutes what it took me eight hours to create this horrible, <laughs> tumorous mess. Because he's good at it. He knew what he was doing. Say, Brad, what's your point? Four different people for one project. In our spiritual lives, as you're seeking to dig a foundation and get on the rock, think in terms of there'll be no, there won't be one person that can help you with everything. But reach out to everyone. There's somebody that's really, God has blessed them with the younger kids' things, and they've already raised their kids. Be humble enough to say, help me. I've got a question. Someone that's better with teenagers. Someone that's already had college kids. Someone that's good with their finances that can help with the budget. Someone who's already had cancer and walked through that. Someone whose wife has breast cancer. The reason you're in a church family and we're connected is to help one another. There'll be no one expert for your spiritual life growth project. Does that make sense? We need each other. Humble yourself to reach out to each other to put it into practice. People can tell you what they've done. People can give you ideas. What did you do? What did you do? What did you do? Finally, a way that you can get this done and put things into practice is number five, swallow your pride and make it easy for people to speak into your life. Swallow your pride. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, listen, You can read God's word and often it will hit you right between the eyes. But guess what? You can sometimes read God's word and something that should hit you between the eyes still doesn't because your own heart is so deceived. But if you will make it easy for people to speak into your life, as you read God's word and you pray that prayer and say, oh God, help me to be more like this. Guess what might happen next? So don't see it as an inconvenience. See it as an answer to your prayer. Somebody rebukes you, speaks into your life. And points something out and says, I know this isn't like you, but what's going on? Don't reject that. Don't be so proud that you don't want anyone to speak in. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. There is a guy who's new to our church and came to my small group this year. He's had such an impact on our small group and on me. I mean, like, wow, because I don't see people like this. He loves God. I mean, loves, loves, loves God. It's obvious. No question. He loves God's word. Oh, it is obvious. He knows the Bible backwards and forward, loves it. He's this guy. I would say he's a modern day John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And it was said of John Bunyan, prick him anywhere and he bleeds Bible. 
this guy just bleeds Bible. If I write him an email and I mention that it's a sunny day, he writes me back with five verses about the sunshine and that God created it and we need to give him glory. It's like, okay, stop it. I got it. I mean, Bible verses for everything. He loves the Bible. He loves God. But that's not what has impacted me the most because believe it or not, I have seen that before in men and women. They know their Bible. They love their Bible. You know what it is about him that I rarely see? That even I pray that God would help me to be more this way? That was outstanding. I went to him on more than one occasion. Two or three occasions I've reached out to him to tell him something that I didn't think he wanted to hear. And so I prayed, oh God, help this to go well. And it went well. He didn't take offense. He didn't get defensive. He didn't get angry. It wasn't a bad scene. You say, Brad, how do you know? Because don't you hate it when you have a meeting with someone and you've prayed and and you talk and you drive off? Well, I think that went well. No, it didn't. Later you find out, oh, they're madder than they were before. They're gossiping about you. They're furious. You say, how do you know it went well? Here's how I know. I had never had anyone do this before. He leaned forward in our conversation in my dining room. He smiled real big and said, please know, you are not offending me by this conversation. Oh, hallelujah. Wow. You have not offended me by this. And he knows what he believes and why he believes it. And I was saying differently and saying, please do differently while you're in our small group. That's not what we think. That's not what we believe. Please know you have not offended me. By this conversation. Folks, that bodes so well for that man in getting his life on the rock. It would bode so well for me too. Humble yourself and make it easy for others to speak in your. So read the Bible, how much of it? For how long? Don't read your Bible with the entire time you've allotted to read your Bible, but save five to seven minutes to ponder, personalize, pray that God will help you live it out and then get close to other believers. I know it's inconvenient. I know it'll take some time out of your schedule, but you must have it to finish well. And then be humble. Oh, work hard to put God's word into your life and practice, but don't ever get lost in Bible verses or principles and lose sight of we are following a person, Jesus Christ. He's real. We're wanting to love him and please him because he's real. So I want to end with Peter along with the building picture that said in 1 Peter 2, that for believers, Jesus is precious to us because he is the chief cornerstone. And this whole thing that God is doing in your life, yes, you must put forth effort, but praise God, what keeps you standing and what keeps it erect is not you and all your effort, but Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Oh God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for direct access to your throne. Lord, help us to put forth effort, to put into practice your word and move us from sand to rock that we might not collapse in the storms of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.